Hello, and welcome to Harder Than It Looks, Parking Uncovered, a podcast to facilitate connections and illuminate real solutions to common problems within the parking and mobility industry. I'm Brian Wolf, President and CEO of Parker Technology, and I'll be your host as we speak with parking professionals from across the industry at all levels to uncover tips, tricks, and best practices to manage what we all know is harder than it looks, parking a car. On my podcast today is Marlene Kramer. Marlene is the Director of Transportation and Parking Services for California Polytechnic State University, San Luis Obispo. She has 20 years of parking and mobility industry experience. She strategically has developed the university's parking program as a comprehensive, sustainable, and award-winning program. And she's implemented several technological and efficient processes to bring significant changes to the parking program and customer improvements to the campus. On today's show, we're going to cover how Marlene's diverse background has contributed to a better parking experience for her parking customers. We're going to talk about, as a college parking professional, how difficult it is to navigate the challenges of delivering an inclusive parking experience to all of her constituents. And then, of course, we can't, I can't help but want to dig in on hearing more about her run-in with O.J. Simpson's lawyer, Robert Kardashian. <laughs> so, Marlene, welcome to Harder Than It Looks. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for having me today. I am so looking forward to digging in on so many different fronts. And given the fact that you've already given us the option to make it fun, I cannot wait to have <laughs> a little fun. So to kick it off, what I like to do Rather than just going straight to how did you get in parking, I like to actually hand the mic to my guest, to you, and ask you to go back as far as you'd like and tell us your story. So tell us how you eventually, it's going to end up at parking, but you're going to tell us along the way. That gives me a little bit more history on you, and I think it gives our audience a little bit more depth about the people that are on the podcast. So I'll hand you the mic and. Tell us your story. Great. My story begins a long time ago. I am the oldest of four girls. Grew up in East Los Angeles, California. And for those of you that aren't familiar, East LA, as it's fondly known and referred to, is a very poor gang-infested area of Los Angeles, which is east of downtown LA by about five miles. Now, East Los Angeles is every block is claimed by a gang. Mm. And what's really interesting is I had the fortune, my family purchased our family home back in the 1940s. And the one block that we lived on, that one side of the block was not claimed by a gang. Wow. So, yeah, wow. just luck. And... My parents were not affiliated with gangs, so I was able to stay out of that mix. But growing up in East Los Angeles, there that it was challenging, right? Just growing up in that environment, and but we had a lot. I had a lot of great teachers growing up. Primarily through high school, I studied calculus with Jaime Escalante. I don't know if you're familiar with him from the movie Stand and Deliver. Yeah. Well, when they were doing the background on the movie, I was a, a student of his. 
And so they were they would come in and study us for the movie and study Mr. Scalante. And one of the things that he did is he gave us a lot of opportunity, not just with teaching math and calculus, but giving us the opportunity to get jobs. And to he had come to me and said, hey, I want you to take this pre-calculus class with me. And I said, I can't. I have to work. My family, I need to help my family. And he says, if I get you a job, will you come and be in my calculus class? Wow. Okay. And because of that support, it was great. I got job experience and I was able to be part of an amazing program. Luckily, I was a a book nerd and straight A student. So that's another reason and reason why I stayed out of the whole gang environment in that was very prevalent in, in growing up. So in high school, I decided that I was going to, I really liked math. I thought I wanted to be a CPA. And that was going to be my focus was I was going to be a CPA. I loved finance. I loved numbers. And so I started as a student assistant at USC Medical Center in the finance department. I said, I'm going way back. So bear with me. Yeah, no, it's good. This is, I love this part of it. This is how we get to know you. And there there are parking people, I'm sure, that know you that don't know this part of your story. That's the whole point of handing you the mic. So as a high school student, I was a student employee for L.A. County. Graduated high school when I was 17 Mm -hmm. and continued as a student employee. I had really good grades. I got accepted into some really good schools. I got a full ride scholarship to USC. Wow. Yeah, but there's a sad part of that story in that Um, my parents, for religious reasons, did not believe in secular education. So they forbade me to go to school and said, if you want to go to school, you got to do it on your own, which made it really tough. Yeah. And so that's where I said, okay, I'll do it on my own. And started working full-time at 18 years old in finance and put my put myself through school. Now, at USC, I was able to work in some different units. And one of the units I worked in, one of the hospital administrators had been, um, he had got a job over at LA County Sheriff's Department to run their medical services, which, just so you know, LA County... Jails has 20,000 inmates, so they have a big medical program for all the inmates incarcerated. Yeah. So he said, hey, come over to the sheriff's department and, you know, you have your budget and finance background. Come and be my budget analyst over at the sheriff's department. So I went from working Department of Health Services, which I had worked for four years in various, various background, including doing like quality improvement, quality assurance. Uh, surveys and other things that really have really helped me in parking as well. Yep. Went over to the sheriff's department and worked at Men's Central Jail. So that's where we come to the connection to Mr. Kardashian. (laughs) I was very fortunate that I had a assigned parking space. Parking was at a premium. 
And I was happy to have my own space. So one day I come to work in this big black Mercedes is in my parking spot. <laughs> and I told the security uh, guy said, hey, do you want a car towed out of your spot? Sure. I want that car towed out of my spot. <laughs> and so then later on, not a big deal. Okay, I'll make it happen. Leave your keys. I'll move your car into the spot once we tow the car. And okay, I went off to work. And so then later on, someone came up to me and said, Marlene, did you know that was Robert Kardashian's? <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know at the time. At, at the time, uh, OJ was going through trials. So there was a lot of media attorneys and uh, a, a big circle there every day. Anyway, that was my first parking act was having Robert Kardashian's car towed. So <laughs> Interesting. Okay. So you're at the jail. In yeah. Finance. Yes. Yes. But you got so, a taste of parking. How did you actually get to parking? Okay. So let me speed up this story a little bit. So yes, managed basically a 30 plus million dollar budget for medical services for jail operations. And then I got promoted and went over to sheriff's headquarters and continued to do finance and budget operations for field oper field operations at headquarters and then okay. my last promotion was i was a trial what they call the trial court funding operations person and my job was to manage about a 40 to 50 million dollar budget security budget for a whole west bureau of courts for la county so mm -hmm. i was deep into budget and finance and that and Simultaneously, I was going to school and, and back to my, I wanted to be a CPA as an accounting major. Okay. When I started to get into my third year of accounting, I realized I didn't like it. It, <laughs> it was too detailed. I think it was tax accounting that killed me. Mm -hmm. And I, I said, I like numbers, but maybe not that much. Mm -hmm. So I switched to finance which okay. love the analysis and yeah. that was more of my uh, happy there. Yep. Yeah. And, and so what happened is I had a great career with LA County. My, my then fiance at the time got a job up here at slow PD. Uh, he was a um, uh, LA County Sheriff's deputy and he, transferred up to San Luis Police Department. And this was an area that we loved. If you're not familiar, the Central Coast is just so beautiful. We yeah. were talking about starting our family and he, he said, hey, do you want to start a life on the Central Coast? And so we took a leap of faith, got here to San Luis Obispo, and I got a job at the university, still not in parking. Okay. <laughs> in finance. Uh, but uh, and, and not even in finance, I just took whatever job I could get, Brian. Okay. It was just one of those things where I had always had that finance background. Well, about a year later, there was a job that opened and it was business services coordinator for the police department. And that position reported to Cindy Campbell, who many of us know in the industry. Yeah, And so I had the good fortune of being hired by Cindy and I became her business services coordinator. 
I did not realize that I got a job in parking. I was tricked into it. I'm getting <laughs> And so running the business aspect of parking on a university campus with primarily within California, there's so many rules, laws, regulations in terms of how we operate. I remember meeting with our main finance person and she said, parking is the hardest budget to manage on campus because of all the rules that we have with the different funds and uses of funds. Okay, that's, hey, challenge accepted. I then started learning the complexity of parking and it just, it blew my mind in terms of what was there and as a business, what we needed to do. And so over the years, I had had the good fortune of working for Cindy for 15 years. She hired me in 2000 and she retired in 2015. And so over those 15 years, was able to learn the industry, implement technology, and really run a multi-million dollar business. When you meet people on like on the airplane or you're sitting somewhere, they go, what do you do for a living? And I used to say, oh, I work in parking. And the response is, do you park cars? <laughs> you know, versus saying, hey, I run a multi-million dollar parking and mobility business. Right? Right. What's different? Yep. And I think over the years, we've had to learn, and that's some, some of our development within the industry, to really speak the language and explain the story of parking, explain the complexity of parking. Because everyone's a parking expert because they park their cars. And how complex could it be? (laughs) How hard could it be? What's what's funny is that that is actually my second question. I've got it written right here so I can prove it. But I I was, as I was thinking about your job on the university, but everybody would tell us the same same story. We, We, the name of the podcast is Harder Than It Looks. My experience has been you get one degree separated from parking. So anybody above you or beside you, one degree separated, they have absolutely no no idea how hard it is to park a car. And so my question is, what are the tips or tricks? What have you found to be most effective in helping colleagues who know nothing about parking and think it's just putting a car between two lines, understand how complex it is and get them to follow the rules because they have to? Yeah, I think it takes a lot of patience mm. and, turn, and a lot of time because you don't convince people just in one setting. I think right. you have to build a relationship. You have to slowly show them the picture or feed them the story in a way that they can consume. If I start talking about all the complexities of our program, it's just going to fly over them. But if I can get to a common ground and start explaining why things are set for whatever reason, whether it's regulatory, other mandates outside of our control, then things, it's more understandable and more consumable, lack of a better word, for people to understand the complexity and what the decisions that we're making on campus. I always like to say parking spaces on campus are like seats in the classroom. 
there are only so many seats. And so, right. so there could be a hundred students that want that math one-on-one, but there's only 30 seats. So yeah. how do we do that? It's, it's a limited commodity and yeah. we're treating it like a limited commodity. I think it's just, it takes time and it takes time to build those relationships and you have to be intentional about building those relationships and taking those opportunities and being ready for yeah. those opportunities when they present. And they present themselves at the, the strangest times. But at the same time, just being ready to yeah. have your elevator speech <laughs> ready to go. Right. Okay. So I'll bet you've got several stories about the right time or the opportunity or maybe the hardest turnaround. So the hardest person that you ever encountered and how you turn them around. I'll, I'll give you your option to tell me a story or two of success and maybe failure, but success of turning somebody around, helping them finally understand how hard it is for you to park a car? Well, that's a tough question because there's been just so many over the years that it, it, I think about some of the community members and I, and how they have felt that we were that our students were specifically affecting their life and their quality of life. And what's difficult is Cal Poly is located in San Luis Obispo. We have a community college just to the north of us in San Luis Obispo. And we have a community college south of us. There are a lot of people that come to this area, not just to come to Cal Poly, but to attend the community colleges. Right. So a lot of times it's not just our students specifically. Yeah. But I, I, you know, I think taking the time to listen and sometimes it takes multiple times. I was thinking of one, um, one woman who called me several times. She had in, and mind you, our, we are limited by the property lines of the university. I don't control parking in the city. That's the city of San Luis Obispo. So this city resident is calling me every day about my students parking on her street. She said, I put cones out at the street and they, they threw them at me. And I'm, I'm just trying to, do, trying to listen. Trying, you don't own the street. It, yeah. I'm very sorry. You know, so trying to just, and some of those individuals, it's like, oh no. So-and-so's on the phone again, so-and-so's calling. But I think if you start building some rapport and a relationship and they see that you're actually trying to do something, yep. that's, that's huge. And I yeah. think that's when you gain that, you get an edge there where you can turn yeah. it around. And I always think if I can just have them leave, they're not going to leave happy. And we talk about this in customer service here. We're we're not Nordstrom, we're not Burger King. You can't get you can't get it your way you want it. Yeah, so <laughs> it's not that type of customer service. But that doesn't right. mean that we aren't customer focused and, and try to do things to make that experience better. Right. So, yeah. So your colleague Maria Urshad was my guest last month, or I guess this month technically. You'll come out next month. And she told stories very similar to yours around the 
value of building relationships with key constituents or with some of the most vocal constituents <laughs> so that over time they could see that number one, she wasn't going to change her mind. And number two, she was trying to act in their best interest and actually make the situation better. But it's it was never going to be perfect, that, but they developed a mutual respect for each other based on the fact that they could see that you were trying to make the situation better for everyone, not just them, but for everyone and that you had a good heart. So I'm sure that's been your experience as well. Exactly. And I'm sure you never had, you've never had any run-ins with any of the executive staff at the university <laughs> who are upset about where they parked or where they couldn't park or <laughs> where they parked and then got a ticket or something like that. I'm sure that never happened. No, yeah. We have our different uh, special groups that uh, <laughs> we have to handle and manage. And I think we do a, a pretty good job here. I'm really fortunate. Our senior vice president, she ran parking at another university. Not ran parking, but parking was in her portfolio. And so she understands parking. And it, it, and for the last eight years, she's been a great advocate for our program. And I really believe it's because of her knowledge and background of how yeah. complex parking is that we've gotten a seat at a ta the table. And she will also be very proactive to say, hey, Marlene, do you know about this issue? This is going to affect parking down. And so fortunate to have that because that just makes a world of difference when you have your senior leadership in tune with the challenges of parking. Yeah, no question. You, are, in fact, have a luxury of yes. having an executive that knows or at least was exposed to parking. So yes. count yourself among the very few, I think, probably that have that. Yes. So yes. That's, that's good. Good for you. Okay. All right. So now let's talk a little bit about, you talked about your diverse background, the finance, you were in the police department, and then you were in health and health, the health services at USC, I think, right? Or maybe it was at the police office, police department. Tell me about some of the mindset or the processes that you brought from there into parking. I, I'm guessing that somebody listening to this might be interested in how you took your past experience and sprinkled it into your parking experience. Yeah, the, the, my background in law enforcement administration really just transitioned so well into parking just because you have to understand and be a student of the laws that are out there, what you can and can't do, how you do it, the service that you want to provide to your community and how you do that, how you outreach to your community. All those things transition into parking enforcement. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, we're here for the safety and security of our communities, and that's priority number one. Interesting. So that background was really, it was really important. And the background of running a multi-million dollar business with just, when that position opened, that's, it was just a perfect fit for my background and what I had done in the sheriff's department. And then bringing it here, the quality improvement programs, the customer surveys, hmm. all the things to look at the business and bring efficiencies. Because as a public agency, we're limited in resources. Yeah. 
And we have an extra complex level within the Cal State University system because we have other, California's wacky as is with laws and what's next. I won't get into it. You said it, I didn't say it, but I might have thought it once or twice. You know, (laughs) there's a lot of good intentions with the laws that are put out. Yeah. And they're not because they don't understand the complexity of getting people around and the industry. It just, unfortunately, there's, there's some laws that have been proposed and even passed. That really affect our operations. But where I'm going with this is in the CSU, we have another complex issue. Parking on a university campus on my campus is self-support, which means no state tax dollars come to parking. We operate as a business. Yeah. Okay. That was one of my questions. However. However. We are limited in what we can charge our users because of collective bargaining or union agreements. So so it's like saying, hey, Brian, I want to buy a caramel latte from you. That latte costs $5, but I only want to pay $2. <laughs> the, there's there all the staff faculty, their parking rates are really artificially low. So what does that do? Low parking rate encourages driving. Yeah. It discourages using sustainable transportation. I've had staff tell me it's it's more expensive for me to ride the bus than to drive my car and park. Now, the the full cost of driving their car is not considered. But when they're looking at $2 a day to park versus a bus pass, that's maybe $60 a month. And that's $2 a day. Their perception was that it's a lot easier to drive than it is to take public transportation. It is because it it is easier to drive and it's more convenient. And the problem is we are not pricing it at the cost. Staff faculty pays $2 a day, but a student pays $8 a day. So then you get into, but then this, so we have these really, tough constraints in terms of managing the business. And yet we're still on the hook to make all our debt service and all the expenses associated with running our business because we're not state funded. Yeah. We have to worry about having reserves and making sure we have adequate maintenance and repair. And it's a really tough situation. We try really hard within the CSU to work together, collaborate. One of my sayings is let's work harder. Let's work smarter, not harder. If I've solved something or done something, I, I think of our transition to LPR and going permitless. A lot of my colleagues are going through that. It's like, reach out. You can borrow anything right. on my website. You can look at all the documentation. Please do not sit and try to write a policy that was already written and you can right. just tailor it. So yeah. that's a great thing about the industry is I think we're just such a giving group in terms of our information and any everyone that I've worked with throughout the industry is willing to share their successes. 
Yeah, I, I've seen the same thing, which is one of the things I love about parking for sure. Okay, so so you got you touched a little bit on technology. I, I, let me shift the conversation that way. You, you've probably seen a lot of technology changes in 20 years. And so give us a snapshot of what you were dealing with 20 years ago and then how you got to the technology you're using today and how you decided when to put it in. And then obviously you got to figure out how to pay for it. But just give me sort of a mindset around where you started 20 years ago, but where you are today and how you decided to, to get where you are and how you decided to make the change. So I'm going to start 20 years ago as dinosaur days. You literally... <laughs> Everyone had to come to our office to buy a permit. We had lines yeah. out the door. They would fill out a slip. You'd say who you were. And, and then someone would have to input that into a green bar report. If, it, if you're old enough to know yeah, what that sure. is, dot matrix report that was about a foot thick. Yeah. That would come out four to six weeks later. So you didn't know who you sold your permit to. You didn't know what car that was associated with for weeks and weeks and weeks. And that's what we had. You couldn't yeah. make citation payments online. You couldn't appeal online. And then slow, there, there wasn't a lot out there 20 years ago. This is right. over 20 years ago. This is 23 years ago. Sure. And then slowly these solutions started to pop up that were really interesting. And was like, wow, we don't have to wait six weeks to get our permit information. Let's use this new software and, and start going with that. And we just slowly started transitioning as the industry presented the opportunity. Yeah. Then we got to the point where and, and things were, I don't know, use the word stagnant for maybe five, six years. And the, there was an economic downturn. And I think things were status quo with technology. There wasn't anything yeah. super new or exciting. And then things started to ramp up again. Yeah. And here came credit card meters and some other really cool things. And I remember just going to the different parking conferences and coming back, wow, it would be neat to do this or do that. And eventually how we did it was we did it by what we felt was the most urgent need. Like what was the biggest bang for our buck? Yeah, to be quite honest. Good. Yeah. And biggest pain. That makes exactly, sense. Exactly. Exactly. And also leaning on my colleagues to say, okay, you use this. How is this really working? How do you use this? What do you do? Because you have to, a lot of people come to me and say, or ask, what do you use? And what vendors are you using? And it really depends on now. We have the luxury in, in the industry of there's so many options. Right. What do you need? Do you need the yeah. Ferrari or do you need just a Toyota Corolla? Because yeah. you have all of it in between. Yeah. And so I really try to, when people come to me for advice about that, I really try to, what do you actually need? What are your long-term goals in terms of how you want to operate? What's your staffing? What your, does your support look like? Yeah. You need to outsource that. So there, there's just a, a lot there in terms of how 
what we've done. And now, and I'm going to say over the last seven, eight years, we've been able to be very strategic in how we implement technology and know knowing where we want to be and how we want to use it going forward and still looking at new things coming in and new and exciting things. So it's just such an exciting time. Rachel Yoka always says IPMI is like Christmas. And I I really do feel like that. I'm just so excited to go and see what's new and talk with all my parking friends and family and people that I've worked with and really trusted advisors that have... built relationships over the last 20 years. And there's just so much there. There's just so much more for the future as well. Yeah, that's great. That's good. I love your enthusiasm for the future. There's a lot going on for sure. Okay, so I probably should have done this earlier. Give me a sense for the size of staff, the scope of your operations there at, uh, at the, on campus. Okay, a little bit about the campus size. So we're at about 25,000 students, about 5,000 employees. We're set on about 6,000 acres. So we're a really big ag campus. The core of the campus is a little over 100 uh, acres in terms of parking spaces. So about 8,000 parking spaces. Okay. And about of those 8,000, about 3,000 are in structures. And then the okay. rest are surface lots. Yeah. Our, our team is, we're, we're small but mighty. Our team is not very big. We have four full-time parking officers and about 10 on-call part-time parking officers. Where we have, we have a big contingent of student employees. Okay. We're, we're usually between 30 and 40 student employees. And then we have another additional six full-time staff that have various roles to support the parking operation, whether it's reception center, appeals coordinator, sustainable transportation coordinator, software systems person, or we have a director of business services that helps us with all the finance aspect of the business. Yeah. Marlene Jr. So we, yes, exactly. So we have, so it's, for what we do and, and the size, we do a pretty great job with the small team that, that we have. Yes. I commend you for a small but mighty team. So do you have any particular tips or tricks for finding good people and or engaging and keeping good people there on campus? couple things, especially for the parking programs that are within law enforcement. Mm. Like mine, I might report to the chief of police. Historically, we always looked for people that had enforcement backgrounds. Okay. You know, whether they were security guards or did some type of theft pre- prevention. And about five, six, seven years ago, we stopped that. We started looking for people that had hospitality background and service. The other thing that we did, Brian, is we reclassified our parking officers from position would be posted parking officer. Right. Now they're customer service specialists. Okay. And that helped. 
it has helped tremendously. We rebranded the whole department. Nice. We reclassified the parking officers to customer service specialists. And now there's a progression within our parking officers. So our on-calls are on-call parking officers. But once you get into that, those permanent roles, it's customer service specialists. Nice. And the beauty of that is now we can assign them within their job classification. Because remember, I'm in a work in a unionized environment. We could officially give them roles that can be outside of just enforcement, directing traffic, writing citations, just your normal job duties, and really focusing on helping the business be more effective. And it's been great. It's been great for our recruitment and our retention. And we've been really able to expose our officers to other projects and things that they would otherwise have not done. And so it really builds the team and it builds confidence and it builds skills. And the reality is you don't want to lose good people. But it's also a good thing when you've developed someone, because as leaders, that's our role is to develop our team, right? And you go out there and make sure that they have an opportunity. And it's what's great is that it that gets infectious as well. Like right now, we have such a great team. They really work well together. They gel. They're very supportive of each other. And they're very supportive of the overall department. And it's a really good situation to be in. When you have happy people, they attract just good energy. Yeah. It's been my experience. That kind of good energy starts at the top. And I've told the story many times where I could go, you can go into any setting. In fact, my kids are already programmed this way. You can go into any setting. And if you have a great experience, I guarantee you, you go find a leader who really cares. And if you have a really bad experience, this is where my kids usually come in. They're like, they probably got a really bad manager, don't they? It, it starts at the top. People take on the characteristics of their leader. And so my guess is if you've got good chemistry and, and they're gelling, it's probably as a result of your leadership. So congratulations for that. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So now we're going to go into my version of the lightning round. Okay. I, I've just got six questions. It's not really a lightning round because you're going to answer the questions, but I, I'm asking all of these questions to each of my guests. So if I were to go around and talk to your staff and they were to hear a phrase, they would say instantly, oh, that is, that originated at Marlene's definitely. So for me, if people hear experiments never fail, or if they hear it's not over till I win, they absolutely instantly know that was originated on my desk. So what phrase are you known for around the office or phrases? None of them are original. Disclaimer. (laughs) The working, let's work smarter, not harder. Definitely say that a lot. Okay. I also like to remind myself and the team, and that this is just basics, but if it feels good, don't say it. It (laughs) And I want to thank Cindy Campbell for that one and her training. It really is so basic, but it'll keep you out of hot water at work and at home. Yeah. (laughs) If it feels, let me say it again. If it feels good, don't say it. That's right. (laughs) I love that one. I'm going to use that one. I'm going to use that one a lot. How many times have you been in a meeting and you want to say something snarky? 
right? <laughs> no, if it feels good, don't say it. Keep it there. Feels good. That is, that is fantastic. I and love it that. Really, from a we get customer service is so tough in parking, yeah. right? Yeah, we, it is. Are are not here because they want to be here. Yeah, upset and sure. they're riled up, and a lot of times they're gonna they're gonna attack personally. Brian, how long have you worked here? I've worked at this university longer than you've been alive, and I've parked there forever. It's just a way to keep yourself in check. Yeah, for sure. We, as you can imagine, we take 160,000 help calls every month, and uh, those people are not pushing the button to say hello. The other thing that I say, and this is more internal to my team, is don't let the facts get in the way of a good story. We, we've got to validate the facts. Let's yeah. look at what's true yeah. and factual and go with that. And, and don't, don't listen to all the noise. Try to get to that meat of the problem. Because yeah. Yeah. you're going to get a root. fluff yeah. and you can always try to yeah. stick with the facts. And it, if you stick with the facts and it's not that, you know, we say, oh, just tell me the facts and I don't care. We want to hear the story. But yeah. internally, think about, first of all, the facts and then what you agree with. Because that's another thing. If there's smoke, there's, there's smoke, there's fire. Yeah. So you got to think about what, where your customer perspective is coming from. If yeah. they think it's a problem, there's a little sliver in there that's a problem. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. So, so focus on those things. So those are my, those are my sayings. They're not mine. I, none of them are my own, but yeah. and those are some of my favorites. Oh, and the last one is, it's not the journey, it's the parking. <laughs> it's not the journey, it's the parking. Uh, let's and because we are the first and last impressions yeah. when you go somewhere, right? Yeah. You yeah. That's the impression that you get of service and professionalism and all of that. And we are a big, we are a big part of delivering that perception for our organizations. Yes. Lots of pressure. Lots of pressure. No question. All right. So what is the hardest thing that you've ever done in your life? We'll get to parking in just a second. Wow. So I talked a little bit about my education journey. Yeah. Which was a very long journey because I work full time since I was 18 years old. So I'd go to school full time for a while and, and stop. And then I was a single mom for a while. And so about in 2014, I was finishing up my degree and it was a, a dual degree in management and human resources. And unfortunately, my mom was dying at the time. Oh, I'm sorry. And so we were, tr I was trying to full-time job, obviously very busy here, supporting my role, had my mom that was very sick. I was trying to finish up school. And although I had a lot of uh, support at home, it was just a really tough time. And the day I took my final exam for my degree, was the same day my mom passed away. Oh, wow. That wow. morning, something in me said, you know what, I better just get the final done because I knew she was in her last days. That was the toughest thing. 
And mm. then, so then I have a follow-up to that because I had worked really hard for, to finish my degree. And then I started working on my cap, which was great journey. I was setting myself up for this position. And I went, I was working in the role and they didn't select me. <laughs> and and I, this podcast is only half an hour going into the story. They didn't say, I was devastated. I had done yeah. everything right in yeah. terms of background education, serving on the board for, you know, CM, CMPA for 15 years. And I was pretty devastated. And there were several friends in the industry. And then as I go back to your network in the industry, and there were people, I was just, I was devastated. And unfortunately, the person that was running that hiring committee really wanted a more law enforcement person in the role. Sure. I've never been that law enforcement. I've never written a parking ticket. So I didn't have the street cred. Yeah. Or, yeah. Long story short, talked to a few people. I think of like Romy Bolera and Casey Jones and other people yeah. in the industry that say, hey, if they don't value your work, then maybe you need to look elsewhere. Yeah. And, and figure it out. And that it was really tough to deal with that. But I actually, that was the best advice that I got. And so I did, I found another job in another agency. And then when I was leaving, they said, wait, you can't leave. We want you in this role. So it didn't work out exactly. It wasn't like a a perfect story in terms of how I got to my role. It, It was a very hard journey, but I was very very passionate about the role and felt that like I was the best person for the role. And I'm glad it ended up working out. I see it as just a little blip. It built some character and made me reflect on what was important and what I needed to do to be a better, better employee. Yeah, that's great. So you also in that story are just demonstrating something else that I love about parking people. And that is that they are incredibly gritty. Mm-hmm. Parking people have grit uh, and they push through. And so clearly that's, that's exactly what you did. All right. So, so then what's the hardest thing in your job today in, in parking? What's the hardest part of your parking job today? So the university has a lot of goals in terms of growth. Yeah. And all that growth is happening on parking lots. <laughs> oh, okay. So your inventory is shrinking. Inventory is shrinking, costs yeah. are going up. Yeah. Revenue is affected. Yeah. And I'm constrained by unions on what, what can charge staff and faculty. Yeah. Wow. So it's a perfect storm. And, you know, the overall goal is to, it's like the tale of two cities in terms of what we do as a department because. Really, the vision is to reduce single op- occupancy vehicles on campus, right? Yeah. Reduce vehicle. At the same time, I have to, we have to sell parking to pay the bills. Right. So it's yeah. really 
it's a really tough situation and balance to be in to balance all the, the sustainable goals are really important for our future and I get it at the same time you have people that need to get to campus various ways how do you do that with yeah. very limited inventory and resources we're in a pretty rural area here in San Luis Obispo we don't have the transit and other supporting um resources for our commuters like we do in LA or San Francisco. Right. So it makes it so it makes it a really yeah. tough job. Yeah. Good thing they got a finance person in that job. Yes. <laughs> Bills. Yeah. Pay. That first day of, of permit sales, I always say, hey, we can make the house payment because we have different debt service. That's fantastic. All right. So now uh if you could wave your magic wand and fix anything in parking, what would it be? I would fix the issue of parking being tied to the union agreements. No. That, that is the biggest uh, roadblock we have right now for changing behavior. It, yeah. It's not really the revenue issue. Yeah. It's the how do behavior. we change behavior when you have something priced so artificially low? Okay. So that's the magic wand one in terms of that. Th there's okay. a couple others, but it's. That will start there. Yep. Okay. All right. So then when you're not parking cars, what do you do for fun? Oh, I do a lot of fun things. My husband and I are car people. Go figure. In the parking industry, we're car people. So we'll take one of our, we call them our fun cars and take it out for a drive. There's a lot of beautiful roads up here. Uh, also love to drink wine. We have a beautiful wine region here. Yeah. And there's about 300 wineries in the area. It's wow. Yeah. Gorgeous area. Great wine. So between driving our fun cars and going out on nice road trips, drinking wine. Okay. Close so, second. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, yeah, and you got to be careful with both of those. Obviously. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And both of those fun cars just for our stick shift. I don't know how to drive stick shift. I have uh, a driver, so it okay. works out great. What, what are these fun cars? Are you, are you, are you comfortable saying what your, what your fun cars are? Sure. Sure. We have a 67 Chevy Camaro. Ah, okay. Yeah. Nice. And we have a 57 a Porsche Speedster. Oh, wow. We, okay. also, well, we also have another car that's under construction right now, and that's a 55 Chevy. Okay. Wow. I am the proud owner of a 1969 Camaro. Ooh. So I am, I'm familiar with the Chevy muscle cars. It is actually, as we speak, in pieces being uh, restored a second time. I restored it when I was 18. I've owned the car for 30, I can't do math, 36 years. 35 years, 34 years, something like that. It's being restored. I restored it as an 18-year-old, and I restored it like an 18-year-old would restore a car. And and so now this time it's going to get restored. I'm going to have a brand new 54-year-old car, hopefully in a year or so. Nice. So, Congrats. Yeah, I'm, I'm, par I'm solving parking problems at work and at home. <laughs> nice. Yeah, good for you. All right. So the last question for you is, what are you most proud of? I am so proud of 
where Cal Poly is today in terms of how we've developed as an organization and have used not just technology, but been able to bring so many pro- efficiency to so many processes. Yeah. Really look at things and say, okay, that's helping that customer, but what does, what, what are we doing for the internal customers? Yeah. And so it's an, a continual improvement situation. Years and years ago, and i had been in this department for 23 years, so it's a, it's a long journey. A yeah. long time ago, it was one of those things where, oh, Marlene does quality improvement. That's what she does. Where you know, now everyone has a vested interest and is looking to how they can improve something and not to improve just to change things, but sure. to really make a difference and be intentional with that and really manage that, that change management within the team and what can vary. Cause that's the other downside of, of technology is yeah. sometimes it's coming at you too fast and furious and you're, and you just can't, you're getting overwhelmed with yeah, it. Yeah. You can't absorb it. Yeah, no, it's true that the, the uh, ch- parking is changing fast. There's a lot of improvement. There's a lot of change and uh, you have a tough job to balance what you bring on campus and what you don't for sure. You have to be a student of the industry because it's still changing so much and be out there and constantly looking and, and seeing what's out there because a solution that not might not work for me today maybe something that's working for me two to three years down the road. So I think also being open-minded to think, yeah. not, oh, that wouldn't work here or we don't do that. I, I think you have to be open-minded to see where things can go and where you can take them to improve service and to improve operations. Yeah, no, that's great. I can hear the, I can hear the passion in in your 23 years of experience for sure. Hey, welcome back to segment two of Harder Than It Looks, Parking Uncovered. Today, I've got Andy Witham with me. Andy is the owner of Jigsaw Marketing, LLC, in Indianapolis, Indiana. And you can see over Andy's right shoulder, he has a couple of statuettes that will look very familiar Oh, he's got three of them. He's got one right next to him. I saw that in the setup. You will recognize those statuettes as Emmy Awards. And so as we were thinking about what we could do for segment two and talking with somebody who's probably done something harder than it looks, although I think we probably all agree that winning an Emmy might be hard to do, we thought about Andy. And so Andy, welcome to the show. Why don't you just take a couple of minutes to give us a little bit of your background? How did you get Where'd you start and how'd you get where you are? Brian, everything I have today is thanks to you. <laughs> That's a good start, but maybe you ought to go back a little further than five minutes ago. The first job I ever actually had coming out of college was working for Quentin Tarantino during the production of Pulp Fiction, uh, which was ridiculous because when I was in college, Reservoir Dogs was the movie that we watched yeah. every day. And one of the guys got fired and I had a buddy of mine I, who I barely knew call me up and say, Hey, they got an opening. Can you show up is really what it was. 
And so I was a production assistant. I was dragging film canisters from one location to another. I was going out on shoots. I was driving some of the actors from point A to point B. But their creative director, Julie Kirkham, liked me and more importantly, liked my writing. And so she was kind enough to get me an agent. And that agent sold the first screenplay I ever wrote. And nice. so, yeah, lucky, right? It's just because there are guys from Yale talk about harder than it looks. There are guys from Yale and Harvard who come out every year and they have connections and they have the training and they have the talent and they get the jobs, right? I knew lots of writers who were extremely talented, who did not get a shot. So lucky and yeah, good and made a career for nine years, selling screenplays, sold about a dozen of them. Most of them are sitting in what's called development hell, which is just a basement in Warner brothers where and they say, oh, we, we want to do a boxing movie. Okay, cool. We got 25 boxing movies on the shelf. Which one are you interested in doing? So that's where scripts go to die. And the but, basement of Warner Brothers building? Warner Brothers, right? Okay. All right. The seat of development hell. And, <laughs> and so I got really lucky doing that for a long time. And then as a screenwriter, you've got a shelf life. You eventually stop becoming the flavor of the month and they move on to the next guy. And so I... Did some other jobs in LA for a while. None of them were really all that great. And they're like, okay, we want to start a family. LA is no part of the place to start a family. Let's go ahead and move back. And I got a job working for the local CBS and Fox stations as the creator there. And that job was really interesting because live TV is so much different than film production. Budgets being number one, time being number two. And so while I was there, I brought a new flavor to it. And we captured a couple of statues while we were there. And then after that, I finally started getting enough phone calls where it was time to hang up my own shingle and talk we go with the, you know, owning your own business and making videos for others. Okay. So now I'll, that's good. So you brought us up to speed on Jigsaw or on how you got to Jigsaw. So what was the flavor that you brought to, to live TV? Was it your experience in film and the storytelling piece or what, what was it? That's exactly it. So with television, it's very fast and mm -hmm. it's mainly done by people who started off as a production assistant working in the newsroom, right? And then they graduated to copywriter, then they graduated to web editor, then they graduated to producer. And they're all going like this. They're super fast all the time. Yeah. And so really what I brought to the table was slow down, right? And start thinking about your audience because news in particular wants to talk about how great they are and how reliable they are and how it's the same thing businesses want to do, right? Yeah. Nobody yeah. wants to hear about your quality. It is the most overused and useless word in advertising because everybody can claim quality. When people are, when you're watching the news, you expect that they know what they're talking about. You expect that they've done their research. You expect that the facts are right. We hope. And so they were all focused on that. And I was like, stop, let's focus on the viewers and let's focus on what they want and what's appealing to them. And so we started doing emotional pushes for why, 
what is news and why does it matter to me? And what does it have to do with more about the being involved in the community? Yeah. And the service aspect, of it, right? So you start taking that and we took, it was maybe, it wasn't long. It was only two years. We took Fox, which was the cellar dweller in Indianapolis in last place and took him to the first place news organization. It wasn't just us that did that. There were a lot of transformations happening inside the building at the time, but the way we presented ourselves was a huge part. People started thinking about us different. Interesting. All right. All right. What does it take to win an Emmy then? Obviously yeah. you gotta be a good storyteller, but who, who decides who wins Emmys? The real, the important thing is you have to be on TV. That's really the critical component. Okay. So step one for Brian Wolf, he want, if he wants to win an Emmy is I've got to get on TV. Yep. Okay. Well, All right. That seems simple enough. The, the other thing is that you can literally buy a commercial at two o'clock in the morning and produce a piece of content that can be nominated for an Emmy. It doesn't need to be okay. eyed baseball television. It just needs to be the coolest thing in its category. Okay. And so then, so you make some cool stuff. And then usually the station manager is the one who said, or the owner of the company with us, it was Tribune said, Hey, this is pretty good. I think we're going to go ahead and send this in. And then the committee, the Emmy committee looks at everything in the category that gets sent in. And then they go, oh, okay, these are the eight pieces that we think are good enough to, for nominations. And then you get a certificate. You get a certificate from, from the Emmy committee saying, oh, you've been nominated for him. It's the coolest thing ever. And then they have the big ceremony with the ticket. Now, this is not the one that you see on TV, right? Sure. One yeah. thing on TV, thank God, is edited for time and only with the celebrities, really, because that's all anybody wants to see. It's, this is the coolest show and these are the stars on it. And nobody wants to see how the sausage gets made and the morons making this crap. Yeah. The producers are lucky they get on. Oh, sure. Yeah. All right. So, so there's this long list of people that are nominated for Emmys and then you win. How do they tell you that you win? You have to watch the show? No, you are at the ceremony for your group of categories, which is you, you oh. know, an event that's longer than three hours. So they divide it up and do a bunch of different groups and go, okay, okay. They, they, people are going to be here. These people are going to be. And so you show and you wear a tuxedo and you, they call your name. And you go up on stage and you say, thank you very much. And then you walk away with one of these little statues. Okay. So you, they called your name. Was there anyone else that won it or did Andy Witham win the Emmy? I'm the lead producer and the director on all three of them. Okay. Uh, and then when I caught the nomination, you can add people onto the nominations. I made sure yeah. my editor and my animator both got animated or both got nominated along with me on the lead, but they, the, Ryan Wool, Ryan Wing, and Michael Long and Robin Breeden all got one as well. Okay. So are you the only one on stage? Here's what's beautiful is that they hold the ceremonies roughly during spring break. I have never once been to an Emmy service. Oh, you know, so harder than it looks. Try winning one when you're not actually there. Yeah. Okay. Oh. All right. So now we are seeing the sausage because you're like, yeah, I'm not even going to show up. And did you, eh, I'm not even going to show up because you didn't think you were going to win? Absolutely. Break, right? It's okay. I'm going to go. First of all, I'm going to miss spring break with my family. There's two days I got to be gone. 
Yeah. Two, I'm going to sit in some stuffy room wearing a tuxedo, eating rubber chicken for three hours so that I cannot be called when the thing shows. <laughs> I could totally relate to that. I'm like, there's no way I'm going to be humiliated as I'm not chosen. Or would you like to go to Barbados? Yeah. Yeah, that seems like an easy choice. Okay. So they didn't do a live shot of you on the beach? Hey, congratulations, Andy. You just won an Emmy. Pre-recorded. Thank you all very much. I'd like to my mother and my father. They're right here. We're having a good Was it pre-recorded? Oh. Oh, the first one I thought I had. Come on. They're, they're like, I think on that one, there are like five or six other people nominated. And they're big deal people. And I thought, come on, give me a break. And okay, so I want details. Who are these big deal people? Would I know these big deal people? Or are you talking about big deal people in news? Big deal people in the industry, like people okay. that have a 25-year track record of winning yeah. Emmys. But the proudest one I ever got is actually the Promax Award. We had to beat out HBO. It was HBO, USA Network, ESPN, and well, I can't even remember. Two other national networks and we beat them it was just like what are you talking about wow those must have been good stories that's the thing they have to be yeah because okay what's harder than it looks yeah is actually capturing people's attention because yeah you do that all the time i do that all the time if you are in business you are trying to get people to pay attention to you how many emails a day do you get about lead generation techniques or remote assistance or production people or marketing, all this stuff. Yeah. And it, it's just noise. Yeah. Yeah. I've got 614 emails in my inbox unopened right now. And 80% of them are the people that you just described. I don't want to see them. I don't want to go there. Right. And, and figuring out a way to capture somebody's imagination. Yeah is really hard and really valuable because yeah. if you can do that, you can get the camera to turn your way. And once that happens, then you have the opportunity to talk to them and say, Hey, here's what we have for you. Here's how it's different. Here's how it's going to make your life. better." Yep. And that's the real trick is presenting yourself in a different and creative way that makes people Notice that you exist at all, job one. When I was working for Disney, they had a rule that said the first 14 times somebody sees a commercial, nobody notices. You only start getting them once they've seen it 15 times. Think about that, right? You are already $5 million deep into your advertising before anybody has paid you the slightest bit of attention. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Keep going. Which is why you want the number one thing you want is that reach and frequency where it's just, right. I'm not hitting you once. I'm hitting you 16 different times. And oh, by the way, what I'm hitting you with is appealing. And what's the mistake so many people make, if you don't mind, if I go off about this, the mistake so many people make is that they talk about themselves and they talk about how great we are. When we talk about quality. Yeah. Right? Nobody cares. <laughs> they, they don't. What do they care about? They, what, what, what should they be talking about? They care about themselves. Oh. That is the number one thing. Okay. If, if you had, oh, I don't know, let's say a lead generation 
thing. And one of them stands out. And the reason one of them would stand out is, I'll, I'll just make something up on the spot. We are going to bring you a lead every day until you have a sale for free. I might even reject that. Right. right. But yeah, I, I don't believe you. But that's it. Right. You don't believe me. But yeah. At least you caught my attention. No, sure. Keep delivering that message to me where that win of entry is so low. Okay. Yeah. That, that's interesting. The offer yeah. is nice and it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with me and what yes. I Yes. Okay. I can try these idiots out and I can get, oh, I can get a, a closed sale for free with no effort on my part other than taking the phone call. Okay. So fine. I'll give it. All right. So pro tip one is you got to talk about them, not yourself. What's pro tip two is stand out. Clutter, Uh, clutter, clutter, clutter. Okay. How do you stand out? Use in my world, you stand out with the creativity, right? Oh, that's an interesting look. Oh, that's an interesting idea. Oh, that's an interesting graphic. If you can get them for six seconds, right? Yeah. The opening of a video is crucial, right? What are you saying during those first six seconds that matters to them or stands out as being different? It's you, you, the clutter prevents, if you were the only person in the world ever, if you were P.T. Barnum, and you're the only guy in town that has a three-ring circus, you got a clear playing field in front of you. But you're not, right? right? People have different versions of the thing that you're you're offering. And being able to go, hey, hang on a second, gotcha. And capturing their imagination with an interesting visual is a great way to start. Copy is actually harder. Compelling copy right off the top, because number one, a lot of companies don't want to do it. Right. They want to, oh, we want to have our logo first. And then we want to start to go into a standard operating. Hey, this is what we do. And, and if you can go, whatever, make up something on the spot. Did you know dinosaurs are in your yard right now? What? Do anything to capture their attention right off of the bat. Yeah. Oh, uh, just making them do this, hmm? lean, yeah. having them lean in yeah. is gold, is yeah. absolute gold. And there's a reason it doesn't happen all the time because it's scary and it's weird because you're by doing something different by definition, you're, you're already uncomfortable. Okay. So breaking the norm, you're saying that you got to do that. How do all you, right. That sounds like pro tip three, right? You take a look at, okay, I'll give you examples with Geico, right? I'm selling insurance, the most boring thing on the planet, right? You are safe. You are protected. We will take care of you. No one cares. We've got a gecko. Right. We've got a caveman. What? Right? (laughs) Has nothing to do with insurance. But you captured my attention. Why is there a talking gecko? Why is there a caveman? And what Geico did, and they eventually forced everybody else to do it, like Liberty Mutual is this poor man's knockoff. Yeah. Doing with, because they're stuck, right? Progressive is stuck with flow because they came up with one idea and they're going to drive that sucker into the ground for 15 years. Same thing with Liberty Mutual. You're going to see the guy and the emu over and over again because they came up with the one idea. And what, what 
what Geico did was they just throw a bunch of writers in a room and go, okay, best idea wins. And month after month after month, you see an entirely different Geico commercial because the best idea won. Yeah. And it's fantastic. Is Geico better than insurance company X? No. Is, is State Farm worse than Geico? No, absolutely not. But Geico grabbed your attention. He's getting somebody's attention. Okay, so so we're coming around the bend here. And the full, the first idea was that winning an Emmy, so beating HBO and ESPN right. and USA Networks, pretty hard, I would imagine. But it's, so it's storytelling. It's grabbing somebody's attention. And it's ultimately standing out in the crowd, which is what everybody's trying to do. Obviously, when we're trying to sell something from a parking perspective, as people are trying to fill up their garages and they're trying to uh, give people a great experience. It's about looking different and it's about being different and it's about, but it's about also being consistent, right? You've got to be consistent with, with whatever message you have, because somebody has to see it 15 times in order to grasp it or 14, was it 14 or 15? 14 times, according to the Disney rules. Okay. Disney's pretty smart. Yeah. They know. Oh my gosh. There was a great example when they did Shrek. Right. This was the yeah. first big DreamWorks release. And okay. Oh, wow. And they screened it for everybody and they got an 85%. Amazing. Fantastic. This movie is going to be a hit. And as an experiment, they ran it for a test audience with the Disney logo in front of it. And the logo alone was worth 7% boost because there is so much value in the Disney yeah. brand. Yeah. That that brand alone was worth 7%, which was something like $14 million, right? That for one, yeah. that was what was built and in, baked into the cake. And they're the best in the world, no question. And the other thing too, is that Disney always knows that they're going to have a release and people hate competing against them on opening weekend because they will outspend you two to one every single time. Whatever yeah. your marketing budget is, they'll double it. They'll and double they, it. We'll drink your milkshake. Because they're like, no, July 4th weekend belongs to us. Yeah. Don't even try. Yeah. Okay. All right. Don't try to compete against Disney. That sounds like pro tip five. I'm not going to try and compete against Disney. Although we do often refer to Disney as setting a standard that people are being expected to live up to. Yeah. And yeah. I believe that's true, even in parking. Yeah, absolutely. But it's not even in parking. Like all of our industries are important to us. Our vertical matters, right? Yeah. And being able to stand, you have to stand out and turn. Parker's great because they actually have something interesting and unique to offer. Like this is a service that nobody else has. This is a technology that nobody else has. Okay, excellent. Now, how do you get it across to me? And being able to do that consistently and are really the key things. And capturing somebody's imagination takes courage and daring and fortitude to do something different and take a risk because there, there, there is a risk in Geico looking stupid. Can you imagine the original meetings where like the board is looking at this stuff and going, why do we have a yeah. gecko? Cause it yeah. sounds like Geico. Oh, please. Oh no. yeah, I get it. Let's, okay. Let's talk about how we're reliable. Let's talk about how we're good. Let's talk about how they can trust us. Oh Yes. Let's spend time telling people how they can trust us. That's always the sign of trustworthiness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Give me one last pearl. Sure. Or how to win an Emmy. 
for how to win. Besides being on TV. How do I, I got to tell a good, I got to tell a compelling story on TV at 2 a.m. You said I could do it at 2 a.m. I will actually tell you the number one thing. Okay. Actually know it. The number one thing to know is that you can't do it. It, and not you, Brian Wolf, anybody, right? Okay. You need the right people in mm-hmm. the spot, right? There's no chance. The, uh, the coolest thing we ever did in my mind was wanted to show, hey, we've, our morning newscast goes on longer than anyone else's. Who cares? Right. Yeah. But what I sure. did was I had a 180 degree track that went around in a circle and you put the newscasters in. And you have the, the camera go around them as the, so the whole thing keeps moving. And then you replace the newscasters one by one as the day goes on. The sun comes up, the day moves on. And during the time, the city is changing behind them from one environment to another. That was a home run. I came up with the idea. I produced the idea. I directed the idea. But I couldn't do the animation. I couldn't do the lighting. I couldn't do the camera work. I couldn't be the person standing on camera delivering the lines. There are a whole bunch of things that you can't do. And if people try to get away with basement level marketing all the time because they don't want to spend money on it because it's scary. And mm-hmm. they feel like a money hole. Okay, I completely get it. Lots of people have thrown money down the hole over the year. However, sure. if you want to stand out, you have to, to tap the right people and say, hey, I need you to animate this. Hey, I need you to write this. Hey, I need you to do this because I've got a whole bunch of awards. I can't do it all, right? right? I know team. that I need people on the team that are good, not yeah. cheap. Yeah. Not, they've been working with us for five years. Right. They, they, yeah. All those excuses have to go. You need to get risky and say, hey, you know what? I was on... YouTube the other day, and I saw this piece of animation that I thought was absolutely fantastic. Let's talk to that. Right. Let's see what she can do for us. What's she, right. she for any ideas? Let's take a meeting. And being able to tap into other people's creative talents is key because that's what they're good. At, right. And people try to do it themselves. And they're like, oh, I've got a great idea and I'm going to put it together. And I'm going to. And yeah, you need expertise. I'm hearing you say that you need some expertise. It takes a team to do it because it's hard for, it would be hard for one person to do it all. Absolutely. Yeah, it sounds like, that sounds like parking. You need a team. But, sounds like yeah, Parker. Exactly. It's like you have got to have a team. And coming back to Parker, just real quick, you've spent years building that audience and it was, none of it was easy. Right. Little by little, bit by bit, piece by piece, you slowly start gaining people's attention. And in the beginning, it's very much about just trying to get them to pay attention to you. Yeah. Point where your reputation is helping, right? Oh, they're helping us. Sure. With this. Oh, we're helping up with this. Okay, great. Being able to tap into that market and get their attention in the first place, it, you've got to stand out and get the right team to do that because that helps. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Andy, thank you for your time. Thank you for your expertise. And most importantly, for your friendship. We've been friends for a long time and uh, we won't bore people. We'll bore people over bourbon sometime about how we met. Okay, that's a wrap on this episode of Harder Than It Looks, Parking Uncovered, presented by Parker Technology. 
please leave us a review if you liked what you heard. Make sure you tune in next month as we continue to uncover tips, tricks, and best practices to manage what we all know is harder than it looks. Parking a car. Bye for now.